Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Roots of Canadian Conservatism. Americans swarming by thousands on shore, cruelty and mischief are subjects no more. Flung his measure aside, became Colonel and Twig. Sing for the dog daddy, for the dog daddy. Sing for the dog daddy, sing for the dog daddy. In July of 1776, after years of controversy and skirmishing, the American seaboard colonies of Great Britain declared their independence. The middle ground in colonial politics fell away, and complex issues suddenly resolved themselves into a single simple choice. Some put continuity, stability, and tradition higher than the risky promise of independence. They became loyalists. And after seven years of futile opposition, 100,000 of them were driven into exile. In 1784, some 8,000 of these refugees were settled in the wilderness of what is today Ontario, and the society which they founded still preserves in its political culture the memories of this Caesarean birth. Ideas presents Richard Cartwright and the Roots of Canadian Conservatism, a three-part series on Upper Canadian loyalism and its legacy, written and narrated by David Cayley. Tonight's program is based on the career of Richard Cartwright, a native of Albany, New York, who gave loyalist conservatism one of its first articulate expressions in early Upper Canada. Of Albany, where I was born, I'd have you hear me sing. I grew to manhood there in loyal attachment to my king. But rebels rose in arms against his just authority And made a persecution against all would not agree My father's tavern they despoiled and raised a hue and cry And those who would not sign their oath from home were forced to fly was in October I set out and riding in the rain We northward made for Canada Never to return again On June the 4th, 1776, an angry crowd gathered outside the King's Arms in Albany, New York. Inside the inn, the proprietor, Richard Cartwright, was giving a dinner for the mayor and other prominent citizens in honor of the birthday of George III. The event marked Cartwright, 
who was then the deputy postmaster of Albany, as a loyalist. And two years later, he was banished from the city by the local committee of correspondence. At the time of the attack on the inn, his son Richard Jr. was 17 years old. He was a studious youth who planned a career in the Anglican ministry. But he too soon fell afoul of the local revolutionary authorities. An incriminating letter which he had written to his sister at Niagara was intercepted, and he was required by the committee to enter into security for his future good behavior. Apparently, he preferred exile, because in October of 1777, a full year before his parents were finally forced out, he voluntarily left Albany on his own. Still only a boy of 18, he kept a journal of his journey to Canada. The distracted condition of my native country, where all government was subverted and caprice was the only measure of usurped authority, had long made me wish to leave it. Procuring a pass from General Gates, I set out from Albany on the 27th of October, 1777, and notwithstanding the tender feelings of humanity which I suffered at parting from the fondest of parents and a number of agreeable acquaintances, it gave me a sensible pleasure to quit a place where discord reigned and all the miseries of anarchy had long prevailed. The whole way from Stillwater to Lansing's was marked with devastation. And of the many pleasant habitations formerly within that distance, some were burnt, others torn to pieces and rendered unfit for use and but a few of the meanest occupied, the inhabitants in general having been forced to leave their once agreeable and delightful part of the country, it now displays the most shocking picture of havoc and wild desolation. The inevitable distress of the fugitive inhabitants, their want not only of the superfluities and comforts, but even of the common necessaries of life, occurring to my musing thoughts, made me curse those responsible. The 31st, in the morning, we proceeded to Fort George, which was entirely reduced to ashes. There, in the afternoon, we fortunately met with a boat which carried us to Diamond Island, about five miles up the lake, where lay a detachment of British troops. On our arrival, it gave me inexpressible pleasure to think myself at a happy distance from those scenes of outrage, tumult, and oppression which I had long beheld with fruitless indignation, and to find myself secure from those petty tyrants who had involved my once happy country in every species of distress. From Montreal, where his journey into exile ended, Richard Cartwright went to Fort Niagara and served there as supply officer and secretary to Colonel John Butler. Butler commanded a mixed Loyalist and Iroquois regiment, which conducted a ferocious guerrilla war along the American frontiers. Cartwright, despite his commitment to the British cause, found the war distasteful, particularly the role of the Indians, whose style of warfare he considered uncivilized. We've now been two months in the Indian country, 
a time too long to spend among the savages in the woods where we are wasting too many of the liveliest and most cheerful days. I begin to grow more and more tired of this our way of life. Neither my application to business or books can prevent me from sometimes reflecting how disagreeably I am situated in many respects, and I look back to Niagara with a wishful eye. Religion and philosophy may enable a man to bear losses and afflictions with patience, but that humanity and sensibility of mind which are their inseparable attendants will ever serve to make his situation the more disagreeable when among savages and barbarians. With Major Butler I did serve in scenes of Indian war And bloody raids our forces made south from Niagara's shore But I was sick at heart to see such waste and cruelty And longed at last from war and bitter bloodshed to be free to Fort Niagara, then I came, a fortune to be made, supplying of the soldiery with articles of trade. With Robert Hamilton I joined provisioning the forts, and packed the furs of the broad northwest to ship to British ports. In 1780, Cartwright left the military and went into business with a Niagara merchant named Robert Hamilton. Cartwright's military and family connections helped them to become quickly established, and they were soon linked with the Montreal firm of Todd and McGill as forwarding agents for the still booming fur trade. As such, they joined themselves to what was then the main axis of economic power in the infant province. The first Loyalist settlements in Upper Canada were small and dispersed, and the merchants, with their influence in London, their access to the government in distant Quebec, and their effective network of communications, soon established themselves as the effective power in Upper Canada. Thus the matter stood in 1791, when the Canada Act finally fulfilled the wish of the Loyalists in the Upper Settlements for a province of their own. And with the arrival of the new Lieutenant Governor, General John Graves Simcoe, in 1792, a new political society was formally inaugurated. Simcoe had commanded a Loyalist regiment during the American Revolution, and he returned with high hopes and ambitious plans. Upper Canada, he declared, was a dagger pointed at the heart of America, and he believed that its success would win back the allegiance of the Americans. But there was more to Simcoe than just this personal grandiosity. He also came as an embodiment of a British intellectual tradition of counter-revolutionary Toryism, a tradition recently reinvigorated by the terrifying events of the French Revolution. To them, the French Revolution was uh, an upsurge of everything uh, alien and radical in the European tradition, profoundly disruptive of the kind of society they believed to be good. Historian Sid Wise. The ideas of, of Burke and Blackstone, uh, Delome and Cobbett and others of that generation 
are transmitted to Upper Canada, not simply by a SIM call, but by a bombardment of forms of communication which lasts for, oh, at least a generation, so that through all the lines of transmission which connect this colony at the outer edge of empire to the heart of empire during the whole period of the revolutionary and Napoleonic struggle, Upper Canadians are bathed in a counter-revolutionary ambiance. The content of British counter-revolutionary ideology, which is, is really too vast and complex for us to treat here, is in part, of course, a justification of what exists. In Burke's thought, it is what past generations have given us. We are simply the middle term in the everlasting contract between the past, the present, and the future. Uh, our task as human beings is to adjust ourselves to the wisdom of the ages, make certain improvements, defend the rational liberty which lies at the heart of the British Constitution, but along with it, all those complex social and legal and economic relationships which together make up a, a class system which is hierarchical and which is centered around the unequal distribution of property and of political power. So we have here a justification both for liberty and, of course, for an old order, which some would term feudal. Now, this kind of counter-revolutionary ideological set is different in certain important respects from what the Loyalists brought with them. It was this difference that Richard Cartwright initially found so provocative. He expressed his exasperation in a letter to his friend and business partner, Isaac Todd, in Montreal. I do not doubt the disposition of the governor to consult the welfare of the province. Yet this disposition sometimes puts on an odd appearance. He is a man of warm and sanguine temper that will not let him see any obstacles to his views. He thinks every existing regulation in England would be proper here. Not attending sufficiently, perhaps, to the spirit of the Constitution, he seems bent on copying all the subordinate establishments without considering the great disparity of the two countries in every respect. And it really would not surprise me to see attempts made to establish among us ecclesiastical courts, tithes, and religious tests, though nine-tenths at least of our people are of persuasions different from the Church of England, though the whole have been bred in a country where there was the most perfect freedom in religious matters, and though this certainly would occasion almost a general emigration. Cartwright's differences with Simcoe, naturally enough, were not merely on points of political principle. Established by 1791 as virtually the only effective government in the province, the merchants had much to lose from Simcoe's centralizing schemes. Moreover, Simcoe soon became aware that resentment of the merchants was quite widespread among the settlers. The matter came to a head in 1793, when Cartwright and Hamilton were awarded an exclusive contract for the supply of grain to the British military. Simcoe immediately received popular petitions decrying monopoly. Bruce Wilson is the author of The Enterprises of Robert Hamilton. Simcoe, very quickly after the monopoly goes into effect, starts to get petitions from 
Kingston, Niagara, and Detroit. It's, it's really the province's first agitation. And although Simcoe, given the sort of background he has, he's landed gentry, soldier, not very inclined to think that commerce is an important thing, he very quickly turns around and, and comes to describe the merchants as usurpers, as uh, distorters of the proper system in Upper Canada. They own the shops, they own the mills, they speculate in land, they control supply, they control the land boards and the courts. Because they're such powerful men, they're, you know, they're going to be able to exercise patronage. And in many ways, I think that was very, very perceptive of, of Simcoe. He indeed was right. The government, uh, his little government at York, uh, very often has trouble knowing even what's going on in the province beyond uh, the provincial capital. It certainly has trouble exercising an influence. And he sets out to, um, to lessen their influence in all those areas. You could really see a conflict between a power structure, a, a mercantile power structure which exists before the establishment of the province and the new political structure which is coming in. A struggle for power, of course, can also be a struggle for principle. And there were very definite matters of principle at stake between the pragmatic loyalist and the visionary imperialist. It is certainly possible that Cartwright wished to preserve his power as a local magistrate. But when he addressed the legislature in 1794 on the subject of Stimcoe's bill to centralize and anglicize the court system, he also presented very substantial arguments in favor of the status quo. There is no maxim more incontestable in politics than that a government should be formed for a country, and not a country strained and distorted for the accommodation of a preconceived and speculative scheme of government. Since the settlements which were formed in this country after the American War began to acquire any degree of stability, we have had a system of justice easy to be understood and followed by any man of plain sense and common education. Yet this establishment, so well adapted to the nature of the country, the present bill is intended totally to overturn. In its stead is to be erected a system which will infallibly operate as a denial of justice in nine out of ten cases which our small and uncomplicated affairs are likely to produce. In England, where the system now proposed to us has long obtained, the law's delay has been frequently and pathetically declaimed as one of the great evils of life. Yet in point of size, England is hardly equal to the smallest of our districts. We have a thin population scattered over an immense extent of country, interrupted by inland seas, without communication or intercourse for at least five months of the year with but a single lawyer within the compass of 700 miles, and where every part is equally barren of intricate or important subjects of litigation. Can the same judicial arrangements be at all applicable to both? To persist in the attempt to make them so will literally be bringing the mountain to Mohammed, or saying, like the famous tyrant of antiquity, here is our standard. If you are too long, we will lop you. If you are too short, we will stretch you to our dimensions. I trust I have said enough to convince this House that this is a measure more apt to fill the pockets of professors of law than to promote the speedy and effectual administration of justice. Cartwright's speech was typical of his opposition to Simcoe on a number of issues. Distressed by the resistance Cartwright and Hamilton were showing to his schemes, 
Simcoe denounced them both to the colonial office in London. Cartwright, who had his own connections in London, learned of the matter from Isaac Todd. He encountered Todd at a ball given at the home of mutual friends in Montreal. Mr. Cartwright. Mr. Todd, it's a pleasure to see you again. And you, sir. Uh, Cartwright, I've just returned from London and I'm afraid I have rather distressing news. Yes. General Simcoe has apparently written to Lord Dundas on the subject of your differences of view. From all I can make out a most insulting letter, he calls our partner Hamilton an avowed Republican. And yourself, sir, though I hesitate to repeat it, he accuses of sordidness and vanity. Well, it seems that all who will not consent to be mere tools and bow to every whim of the executive are to be ostracized. I must say, sir, I am highly indignant. I think I have deserved better, much better. They thought that their image, their vision, their dream should be realized, not Simcoe's. George Rollick, chairman of history at Queen's and a close student of Cartwright's career. Uh, so there is certainly competition there between one elite and another, uh, one conservative elite and another. And I think there are those who would argue that because they were so similar, their animus was even more intense. The small differences which existed really had to be exaggerated as each attempted to shoulder the other off the scene. So there was a real battle concerning uh, which group would be uh, in the ascendancy. And of course, Simcoe wins out at the beginning. And uh, people like Hamilton and Cartwright are very angry. But I think it's striking that by the end of uh, Simcoe, Simcoe's tenure in Upper Canada, he has to admit that these chaps aren't so bad after all. And uh, Cartwright makes the same point. So that by, oh, 96, 97, I think uh, Cartwright, Hamilton, and Simcoe are on the same wavelength. In Kingston I did settle down to raise my family. And children soon did play and sport at their proud father's knee. The axes of this loyal band dispelled the forest's gloom. And in the howling wilderness did make a garden bloom. Richard Cartwright's wife, Magdalene, was born Magdalene Secord, sister to the more famous Laura. And following their marriage in 1784, she and Richard had eight children. In time, their education became one of his major preoccupations. Hoping to start a school in Kingston, he arranged, through Hamilton's brother George in Scotland, to engage a schoolmaster. And thus, on the last day of 1799, did John Strawn arrive in Upper Canada. I was agreeably surprised by the appearance of Mr. Strawn on the evening of the 30th December, after I had given up all hopes of seeing him. He was unfortunately 12 weeks on his passage to New York and arrived at a time of all others the most unfavourable for travelling into this country. 
His circuitous route has added considerably to his travelling charges, but I am so well satisfied with his diligence, capacity and good temper that I do not regret any part of the expense incurred for a gentleman who promises to be so eminently useful. It was three years before the school which John Strawn had hoped to find waiting for him was finally launched in Cornwall. During those years he lived with the Cartwrights as a private tutor, and his relations with the family remained close thereafter. By this time, Cartwright's business activities had greatly expanded, and he was well on his way to becoming a wealthy man. The flour produced at his mills in Napanee had an excellent reputation, and in 1801, fully one quarter of the flour shipped from Kingston to Montreal was Cartwright's. I'm much distressed for want of a good miller, and from your having some very capital mills yourself, you're probably acquainted with any of that profession that may be in your neighborhood. Should there be anyone... I'm glad to hear your friends, the Mississaugis, have not forsaken you, for their trade, though much less valuable than formerly, is still worth attending to. Yet the prospect for peltries at home... I am sorry I have neither stationery nor sheeting of any kind to send you, nor indeed anything very suitable for common summer wearing. I believe you have a... Dear sir, I beg leave once more to consign you a small cargo of mittens, the manufacture of a poor family in this neighborhood. I will gladly take whiskey in return for them, as before. The Simcoe was launched on the 29th of October and is now in Mr. Forsyth's wharf. Her master is a very decent man, apparently, and if he is as good a seaman as he is a carpenter, will be a very great acquisition. I keep two of the carpenters till she's finished. The other two set off this morning. Mrs. Cartwright is much obliged to you for the cranberries. By the early 1800s, Richard Cartwright was blessed with both prosperity and political influence, but he remained troubled about the future of his adopted society. Cartwright conceived of Upper Canada as primarily a loyalist society, but in fact, it was becoming more and more an extension of the American frontier. The trouble, in Cartwright's view, had begun with Simcoe's proclamation of 1792, which offered free land to all comers. Cartwright expressed his misgivings in a memorandum to the new lieutenant governor, Peter Hunter. General Simcoe appears to have thought that the immediate peopling of the country was an object of sufficient importance to supersede the regulations which had been hitherto observed in distributing the wastelands of the crown. A proclamation was immediately issued for the purpose of inviting emigrants, and the speculations in lands being about this time at their height in the American states, Jobbers flocked in from every quarter, proposing to bring a large number of settlers. The loyalists heard, with astonishment and indignation, persons spoken of as proprietors of townships, whom they had encountered in the field under the banners of the rebellion, or who had been otherwise notoriously active in promoting the American Revolution. I will not disguise from Your Excellency the opinion which I have always entertained, and on every proper occasion expressed, that this ought never to have been permitted. What Cartwright objected to in the American settlers was what he called the affectation of equality. And in his memorandum to Hunter, he goes on to say that what is wanted in Upper Canada are, in his words, men of tried loyalty who have been bred up in habits of subordination. 
These remarks go to the heart of his conservative vision. Like many loyalists who thought that the American Revolution had liberated all that was base and hateful in human beings, Cartwright believed that order and hierarchy were simply part of the nature of things and therefore essential to the happiness and welfare of society. Historian Jane Arrington summarizes this view. There were some who were fit to lead and most who were not. Most who had a position in life or in society or in their community and whose position was valued, but who should not ever expect to move out of that position. In the same way that there were others who were fit to rule, to make decisions, both by education, um, by perhaps wealth, primarily by attitude, by gifts and talents that they had been given or, or inherited. Now, often that group tended also to be the, the social and political elite in straight strategic political terms. But nonetheless, I think there was a belief that we are suited to make certain rules and to guide, and I think that's primarily how they saw it. And others should be willing to be led. And within all of those terms, you have this need for order, the need that everyone does know their place and is willing to accept their place. And with place came responsibility. And so that you have responsibilities to the whole, those at the top had very specific responsibilities to make decisions for the good of society, whether it was what the majority wanted or not. That was one of your responsibilities, to not be pushed by the rabble, um, to in fact do for the good of the whole. Central to this political philosophy was a distrust of democracy, a distrust summed up in the word faction. The loyalists were convinced that making politics the domain of competing political parties would eventually destroy any conception of the common good. Society would then become so chaotic and so totally politicized that only a tyrant would be able to restore order. This was the view that Cartwright expressed in a letter to the editor of the Kingston Gazette in 1812. Under the government of the United States, the widest scope is given to the violence of faction. Every family is agitated by political discord. The intrigues of a few artful demagogues pervade every state and dictate every public measure. Domestic happiness and tranquility is disturbed by party feuds. They pollute even the administration of justice. And the conjuncture is perhaps not far distant when the collision of factions contending for power shall produce explosions similar to those which have deluged other republics with the blood of their best citizens and which have ended in their subjection to some ambitious leader. Democracy was allowing the mob, and the mob had a very specific connotation, I think, to these people. The mob was unruly, it was destructive, it was anarchy in all of its worst forms. Jane Arrington. Allowing those forces to prevail was first going against the wishes of God, and it was certainly going against the best interests of, of everyone in the society. But that didn't mean Cartwright opposed elections. Cartwright himself was, though he never ran for the House of Assembly, he certainly expected there would be a House of Assembly, he understood there would be a House of Assembly, and he saw that it had specific roles. It was to voice the wishes of, a, of the people. At the same time, however, he also expected there to be a strong executive power that in the end made policy decisions um, that, because of its collective and individual wisdom, knew in the end what was best. This aristocratic conception of politics 
faced very major impediments in Upper Canada, the main one being the fact that it was not shared even by the majority of Loyalists, let alone the more recently arrived Americans. The Loyalists, on the whole, were small farmers, drawn from a variety of ethnic and religious backgrounds, whose petitions to government show a strong distaste for the privileges and pretensions of the elite. The Methodists, in particular, disliked the established position of the Church of England and resented the fact that their own ministers could not legally solemnize marriage. Their loyalty was a common bond, but even this was often an instinctive rather than an ideological commitment. Historian Bob Fraser. You'll have petitions from loyalists who are largely Methodists complaining bitterly about their lack of full and civil and religious rights. You have complaints against monopolies by merchants, monopoly contracts, Richard Cartwright being one of the ones who partakes in a monopoly contract in the 1790s. You find it even in terms of social subordination, instances of people talking about the tyranny of the petty magistrates. There's a way in which individual people out in the districts come up against local institutions. The courts is a good example. And feel oppressed by them. You know, there's a, a tremendous loyalist reaction outside of Kingston and Kingston's hinterland to where the district school goes. And if you look at the content of those petitions, four years part of the War of 1812, again, what they're criticizing is monopoly, hierarchy, subordination, the privileges of an elite, etc. And these people, someone like Ebenezer Washburn from Prince Edward County or Thomas Dorland, their credentials as loyalists are impeccable. But loyalty does not simply mean, as certain people try to make it, adherence to the status quo. Then Robert Thorpe was sent out as a judge of the king's bench. And all the while America conspired with the French. Judge Thorpe spread pride and insolence amongst our yeomanry. And threats within and threats without vexed our tranquility. In the summer of 1805, an Irishman named Robert Thorpe was sent out to Upper Canada as a judge of the Court of King's Bench. He immediately attempted to capitalize on the latent discontents of both the Loyalist and American populations by inciting juries to express their grievances through him. Historians have generally dismissed him as an egotistical opportunist, which his shrill and exaggerated rhetoric indicates that he probably was but the grievances which he tried to exploit were as old as the province itself. Privilege, favoritism, and oppression by the merchants. These Scotch peddlers are linked in a chain from Halifax through Quebec and Montreal to Kingston, York, Niagara, and Detroit. They have insinuated themselves with government to irritate and oppress the people. And at length this shopkeeper aristocracy have so stunted the province and so goaded the citizens that they've turned from the greatest loyalty to the utmost disaffection. Cartwright, needless to say, 
was appalled by Robert Thorpe's conduct. Mr. Justice Thorpe came to the province to fill a vacancy in the Court of King's Bench. Had his vocation been to revolutionize the province, a fitter instrument could not have been found. How he came to be selected one of its judges is a matter of astonishment. A popular judge is an odious character, says Lord Mansfield very truly. What then are we to think of one who sets out with openly offering himself as a popular leader? From his first entrance into the province, he showed a disposition to interfere with and dictate to every department, and stated himself as the only person to be looked up to by the people for obtaining their just rights. He spread discontent and disaffection among the inhabitants of the province, urged the assembly to the most extravagant assumptions of authority, and seduced simple folk from their proper allegiance. Such was the career of a man whose peculiar duty should have been to enforce respect and submission to the government. Oh, the Chesapeake's a bone out of Boston, as we're told, came to take the British frigate neat and handy. Oh, the people in the port all came out to watch the sport while the band played the Yankee Doodle Dandy. In 1807, a naval engagement between a British and an American ship of war, the Chesapeake Incident, as it was called, provoked fears of an imminent invasion of Upper Canada. This fear tended to blur into the existing fears of popular disaffection and created an atmosphere in which Cartwright felt it necessary to try and rally the population. It was in these stirring terms that he addressed the militia in December of 1807. Gentlemen, Great Britain has peculiar claims to the gratitude and attachment of the inhabitants of this province. We possess from her bounty a soil of no common fertility that furnishes to the industrious every necessity of life. We live in the most unbounded security of our persons and property without being at any charge for our judicial establishment. We enjoy every benefit of the best regulated government without being called on to defray any part of its expense. Every advantage which men can derive from civil society has been lavished upon us, while we have been exempt from all its burdens. These are benefits conferred on us alone, and cold and worthless must be the heart on which they fail to make an impression. Thus favoured and distinguished by the British government for our loyalty, what fate must we expect should we fall under the dominion of America? What indeed can we expect but that the former animosities and persecutions against the adherents of royalty, under which many of us have already smarted, would be revived with new vigour, and that we should be made to feel every injury and indignity that personal and political enmity could dictate to vulgar minds? 
Listen not to those who talk of our scattered settlements and slender population as incapable of resistance. These are the suggestions of cowardice or treachery. Our population affords thousands of brave men to arm in the cause of their country and supported as we shall be by a regular military force. What have we to fear from any attempt to invade us? Cartwright and his colleagues were clearly worried. By 1807, non-loyalist immigrants from the United States were already in a majority in the province. And in other ways as well, Upper Canada remained very closely tied to the United States. Historian Jane Arrington. Upper Canada, I think, in that initial, what is often called the formative years, before the War of 1812, was a much more American community than most of us would like to, to think it was. All the ties, either whether it's personal ties in Kingston, personal ties in Niagara, um, of individuals living in those towns or along the lake, tended to be south of the border and not east and west in other upper Canadian towns. Those personal ties are accentuated by very, very strong economic ties, social ties. Someone like Joel Stone, who is a resident in Brockville, quite regularly goes across the border for tea or for social occasions. He's invited quite formally by the commandant of the local American fort, and he takes great pride in going. Upper Canadians see themselves as an American community. It's a specifically British American community. They're not d denying in any degree that they are loyally based but it's a community that reads American newspapers. And as a result of all of those continuing contacts, which increase after 1800 and certainly don't decrease, you have a community which is open to American ideas, which is interested in what's going on, whether it's affecting family down there, whether it's affecting friends, whether in someone like Cartwright's position, it's affecting his business interests. So they're interested in politics in New York. They're interested in national politics. And in fact, if you look at early upper Canadian newspapers and early upper Canadian pamphlets and personal papers, their criticism of the United States, which are quite substantial, are in fact American criticisms of, the, of themselves. They're Federalist criticisms of a group of conservative Americans who themselves are disenchanted with the way their nation's going. And so that upper Canadian, the upper Canadian elite, and particularly the loyalist elite living in Kingston and Niagara, are dependent, I think, upon that group. They see common cause with that group of people. The Federalists are a group of men, as someone like Linda Kerber will suggest, who are reasonably wealthy, who tend to have high standing in their church and in their community, who are gentlemen in all senses of that word, and expect to be leaders. Certainly by 1800, the upper Canadian elites see themselves in that light, and it's quite likely they're communicating with leading Federalists in the United States. And so that they see links, they see a sort of common community that exists amongst North American conservatives. The idea of a common community of North American conservatives made sense only so long as the Federalists remained influential in the United States. And after 1800, their power in national politics steadily waned. Under these circumstances, the conservative Upper Canadian leadership felt extremely vulnerable. Sid Wise. There are two elements I'd like to identify there. Uh, the first is, is macro-geographic, if you like, the relationship of this province to the United States, and therefore 
the, the sense of vulnerability, of potential instability felt by the early leaders of the provincial political system at the end of a chain of empire separated from the motherland by uh, a, uh, a non-English-speaking mass of people at the end of a very long and highly vulnerable uh, line of communications and with a very long mutual frontier with one of the world's great revolutionary powers. Now that setting is extremely important. The second factor is quite as important. That is to say, the existence in Upper Canada of a very large number of people who did not share either uh, counter-revolutionary British ideology or conservative American ideology, many of whom were Native Americans themselves and who were joined later, of course, by immigrants who, who share what could be called democratic radical ideals. That is to say, there are two ideologies at work here in Upper Canada, and much of the province's political culture comes from the tension between them, between the democratic ideology and the conservative one, existing in a context of proximity to the United States and at the end of empire. The struggle between these two ideologies was played out in the years after the War of 1812, and it is to that struggle that we will turn in next week's program. But Richard Cartwright would not live to see its outcome. In 1812, the drums of war did terrify the land. But three years later, at the peace, our province still did stand. With brave rocks, bloody sacrifice, our heroes do inspire. We gain true loyalty's reward from war's infernal fire. But while the sounding drums of war Our province did affright A bitter twist of providence Quenched my dear children's light Full four did I in youth's sweet bloom My hopes left incomplete My tale is done, my song is sung My life ends bittersweet In the years after 1811, Richard Cartwright suffered the deaths of his four oldest children. He died himself in 1815. The War of 1812 was to close out his career. George Rollick. He's ill by 1812, and uh, he is one of the very dependable members of the council. Makes his way religiously to, to, to York to support the uh, government there. Uh, he writes uh, his uh, letters to um, the Kingston newspaper, and he prepares himself for death. It seems to me this is the end of his career, and he knows it's the end of his career. And what he is doing, really, he is the propagandist of the uh, Loyalist cause during the War of 1812. He, uh, he's certainly not participating, and he's trying to drum up support for the Loyalist British cause in eastern Upper Canada. Uh, and he's also trying to uh, do whatever he can to push forward the war effort uh, in New York. I think that's about it. 
when you look at his personal letters, he seems to be very concerned about his children, and uh, he's becoming uh, more and more morbid in his introspection as well. I find him at the end more and more a shadow of himself, and um, by the end, he's almost eager to die. And he dies, of course, in 1815. The war is over. Upper Canada is not American. Uh, his wilderness Elysium, as he calls it, is still there. But he wonders about his um, surviving children, whether they're really up to it. And I think that haunts him. been a resident in this country before there was a human habitation within the limits of what is now the province of Upper Canada, except for the movable hut of the wandering savage or the solitary establishment of the trader in furs. I have seen this howling wilderness in the course of a few years converted into fruitful fields and covered with comfortable habitations. I see around me thousands who without any other funds than their personal labor began to denude the soil of its primeval forests and now possess extensive and well-cultivated farms abounding in all the substantial comforts of life. I see this property unencumbered with feudal burdens, undiminished by taxes, guarded by the wisest laws and equally and impartially administered. I see the proprietor himself protected from vexatious arrests or arbitrary imprisonment. I have seen the benevolent intentions of the British government towards the colony exemplified in every measure that could tend to promote its prosperity and crowned by imparting to it its own unrivaled constitution. I have seen the foundations laid of institutions and establishments for the promoting of knowledge and diffusing religious instruction which, however weak and humble in their present state, will grow with our growth and strengthen with our strength. This is a scene on which the benevolent mind must dwell with peculiar complacency, and amidst the cares and toils of his eventful reign, it must gladden the heart of our venerable sovereign to know that his paternal care of his loyal American subjects settled in this remote corner of his empire has been crowned with such complete success. <laughs> On Ideas tonight, you've been listening to the first program in our series on Richard Cartwright and the Roots of Canadian Conservatism. The series is written and presented by David Cayley, production assistant Alison Moss, technical production Lawn Tulk and Jim Summerfield, sound effects Stephanie McKenna, producer Damiano Pietropaolo. The music was arranged and performed by Anne Lederman and Ian Bell, who are collectively Muddy York. Readings were by Colin Fox, who took the role of Cartwright, and Paul Souls. Our special thanks to Professor George Rollick of Queen's University, who very generously made available the selection of Richard Cartwright's papers from which material for tonight's program was drawn.
And our thanks to Dr. Robert Fraser of the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, who also made original research available to us. Printed transcripts of these programs will be available for $5. And you can get your copy by sending your request to Richard Cartwright, care of CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Don't forget to make your check or money order payable to CBC Enterprises, and please don't send cash through the mail. Please be prepared to wait six to eight weeks for delivery. A reading list on the subject of Canadian conservatism is available for free from Ideas at Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. <laughs> Richard Cartwright and the Roots of Canadian Conservatism continues next week at the same time. But tomorrow night on Ideas, join me for the first program in a series which looks at 25 years of Fidel Castro's Cuba. Inside Cuba, 25 years with Fidel. Tomorrow night on Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>